Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So uh, definitely we have a great founder today, you know, a founder that has been there, has done it, you know, now he's uh, definitely multiple times. So I think that we're going to be really getting inspired with his story, you know, especially with the tremendous growth that he has experienced during COVID and some of the friction too that he has experienced, you know, during these times. So I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today and that is Philip Bellamant. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So, Philip, so originally born in South Africa. So uh, tell us how were the upbringings there? Yeah, you know, South Africa is a really dynamic country and an interesting place. It's always like that, I guess. If, if you haven't grown up in a country, it's hard to understand it from the outside in. But, you know, a very complex country, a lot of dynamics in the country, um, but a huge amount of opportunity. So, you know, I think it's always a bit like this, in my view, particularly with developing economies, growing economies, is that, you know, one has to really make a lot of your own luck. You can't expect necessarily always to go and join some amazing, huge, beautiful corporate. Uh, you know, you have to be entrepreneurial um, in, a, in a lot of instances, even in how you might go about your corporate job. So, so yeah, you know, I really think South Africa has is, is contributed hugely to how I view the world, how I view business. And and how, you know, entrepreneurial really I am and the way I see things. And in this case, I mean, you, you did go the entrepreneurial route like very, very early. I mean, was there like people in the family that influenced this or, or how did you really find that inspiration to really know that one day you were going to build your own business? Absolutely. You know, my father is a technologist, you know, and, and kind of went the traditional route of getting that first job. He was actually French moved over to South Africa early on, met my mother who's South African and, you know, he got his first uh, corporate job and really was a techie, but, you know, hugely driven, very smart guy and, you know, sort of went through a few positions in the corporate world and decided to build some proprietary technology and break away with, at the time, you know, a partner of his from that company who sort of more had the network and, and, and new people and funding sources, et cetera. And so they broke away and, and really I've learned all of my, you know, entrepreneurial side of how I think about things from my father, really, who then started his own business that became very successful in the, in the payment space. So, you know, I always kind of had my father as a, as a guiding, you know, someone who would guide me through this process and how I think about, about things. And he's always also very much supported me 
uh, in my aspiration to go and become an entrepreneur. And I think that's something he's probably always kind of a little bit driven me towards rather than just going necessarily and working at a corporate, um, you know, uh, is, is what I would say to that. So, so definitely my father's influenced me heavily in that regard. And in your case, I mean, as they say, it's all about being at the right time, you know, in history. And in your case, I mean, you decided to go and study biometrics, AI, a little of mobile as well. So, I mean, we're talking about the early 2000s. So that was before, like, the craziness of AI. Now you have AI applied to absolutely everything. So what really prompted you to, to go in that direction? That's a great question, actually. I mean, you know, for us, really... To be fair, when you know when we were at, at school, even you know computers or computer science wasn't really even a subject. You know you had to do that in your spare time, and that's really what I did. I was really fascinated with coding, and and you know that's really where I started, Turbo Pascal and all of these old school languages. So so it was just a passion of mine, something I was very interested in, and and so when I went to university, luckily they had a few courses that were in mobile development, and that was quite forward thinking at the time, frankly, for the university as well. So I was just fortunate that they had some of these courses, biometrics, you know, uh, mobile technology. We had some great professors and lecturers. And, you know, and it's like anything. Uh, I think the foundation of the course was pretty good, but it was just really my interest uh, was very piqued by this. So I did a huge amount of work myself online and, you know, doing your own studies and really researching things and building projects of your own. Um, and that really culminated in, in you know, uh, my thesis for my honors degree, where we, um, you know, we had to build as a group something in a project for Microsoft, and we did we did well in winning that project with our biometrics um, system, and you know, and that really, I guess, kind of did open my eyes to what else is out there because that link through Microsoft gave us access to see what was happening in Silicon Valley and what was going on elsewhere in the world, and you realize that this was really going to be a massive space. I mean, I still remember. You know, us playing around with the iPhone, the first iPhone we had to jailbreak and bring from the US to South Africa just to play around with it. You know, this this silly koi pond, <laughs> koi fish pond uh, app was one of the only apps you could get. And we, that's where we thought, wow, this will be a huge opportunity if we can start building apps for this product before it really blows up. And you obviously, you know, took the chance and you left, uh, you know, the studies, uh, you know, side of things. And and you actually went at it. So how, how was that? You know, I'm sure that it was a little bit scary, you know, to really go at it with your first business. Absolutely. And, you know, I think maybe this is where, um, you know, uh, fortune favors the young to an extent because you're a little bit naive. <laughs> and it's probably yeah. a good thing, right? You're not so calculated in everything you do. You have far less to lose. So, you know, I, I, I definitely think that plays into it. But I, I left university and, and spoke to a few people I'd met along the way. And basically, I just said, look, you know, I've got this interesting idea to do social gaming. Uh, and this was on Nokia 3310s and Samsung D600s. You know, this is, there was no Facebook or Farmville or things like this. But, you know, I had this idea to do social gaming, you know, and had met some great people who are really smart uh, along the way and kind of just said, why don't we go out and try and do this? So, you know, I spoke with my father about the idea and yeah, basically his advice was go and look for an investor and, and see if you can get started. Um, and so that's really what we did. So so we found a, an investor and you're not talking about big money, you know, you're talking about rands way back then. So you're talking about, you know, yeah, $5,000, $10,000 to start. And we put together a team of two, three, four of us and off we went and started building games. And And that's really where the learning curve, I think, really happened for all of us in mobile development, where, you know, you're building 
multiple versions of the same product against all of these different phones. You had different operating systems, you had different brands, and you had different you know, parameters for all of them. And so you had to port one application across you know, thousands of different devices and types and screen sizes. So you know, it was really much different from what you see today in the App Store world, where you go and you build something beautifully on Android, and off you go, and it works everywhere off the App Store or on the iOS Store. Um, you know, it wasn't quite like that. So, so, you know, we spent a huge amount of our time learning how to build and engineer our games, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, grew that quite well. And we had a, a number of users using the product. Uh, but ultimately, as most startups go, uh, they don't always go exactly as you think. So, you know, we had uh, people were able to use airtime credits to play our games and, and they could actually transfer these credits to one another. And, and over time, what we realized is no one was playing the games. Everyone was just transferring the airtime credits to one another um, or using them for competitions. And right. so we really thought, well, maybe we'll stop making the games uh, and we'll just focus on this type of peer-to-peer -peer payments or competitions. And that's really what we pivoted towards. And that became very successful for us. Uh, if we hadn't done that, um, you know, we wouldn't be here today. I hear you. But then also that... Uh caused some friction with some of your investors that were not too happy with that switch. So how did you go about that? And what was your lesson learned from that? Yeah, that, that really was my first big lesson, I guess, in um, you know, how to manage expectations of someone who's given you their money. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's an interesting challenge. At the time, we presented a business case. We suggested we were going to be doing one thing. And obviously, we then decided we should pivot to doing something else. And for us, it was the the best thing for the business. It was the right decision. We were not getting the type of traction in the gaming space we wanted. And we really could see a huge amount of value in the other space. And really the investor turned around and said to us, well, you sold us one thing. You gave us a business plan. We want you to stick to the plan. Um, if you don't do that, then you know we want the money back and you can carry on and do what you want, but you're not going to do it with our money. And it was a huge decision for us because of course, you know, um, to go and repay the capital they had put in so far, and now go figure out what you're going to do. It was a huge decision, but ultimately, we took that decision. We just were seeing so much growth in in the other side of the business, the payment side and the airtime um, game side, that we really just took that difficult decision. And ultimately, we then borrowed an additional uh, 150,000 rand. I think that must be $12,000, which was a lot of money in rands, and you know, we, we went and we rolled this product out of ours in, in South Africa and Namibia at the time, in fact. And, you know, we were able to pay that money back in, in about a week. Uh, the product started to launch and, and grow so well. And, and before we knew it, we were making, you know, uh, close on 100, 200,000 rand a day, uh, you know, a few months later. And so we all of a sudden had this investor who initially came in forced us to pay their money back because they didn't like the pivot and then was upset with us after the fact because the pivot was making so much money and now they were no longer involved. And it's just such a strange thing to manage. So, um, so ultimately, yeah, I think that was the, my first real lesson in you know, being responsible in how you take on people's money and setting expectations for those investors. 100%, 100%. So then whatever happened next? Yeah, so after that, I mean, we really just built the business quite significantly. We, you know, we had a number of key partnerships with some fantastic people selling into Africa. Uh, we were live in about 22 African countries um, with a number of services. And we started to move into a lot more payments type of products like virtual card issuance, lending products, airtime lending products, all of which were really popular. Uh, we, we built the first cash to card product for Uber, for instance, in Africa that allowed people 
use cash to take an Uber, which was quite um, you know interesting. And so we did a lot of these interesting projects. And over time, we started to work more closely with um, my father's company, which was a, a, a Magstripe card issuing business initially and, and had moved into social welfare and, and government grant distribution, but really card-based. So they didn't have mobile tech. And we really weren't a card-based business. We were a mobile business issuing virtual cards. And so, you know, quite complementary. And so we kind of, we then uh, ultimately merged my business into, into this business. And that company's name was NetOne, um, listed on the NASDAQ and reverse listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. And so, you know, that business really focused on financial inclusion um, and all of the products that come with that. And that's really where I got, you know, we got significantly into a responsible lending and building interesting and engineering interesting financial services and products that would add a huge amount of value to the customer base. So, um, you know, so that was really the rest of, of, of the journey in that regard up until about six, seven years ago, where I completely exited that group, moved over to the UK, and of course started to look at this new venture. And how old were you when, when the company reached the 2.2 billion in market cap? So at the time, that was about... 16, it must have been about 14 years ago. I'm just trying to think what that would be now. Um, that must have been 25 around there. That's amazing. I mean, 3,000 people in staff, 2.2 billion market cap. I mean, what a, what a tremendous ride. So I guess in your case, you know, having built a company like that, I mean, what, what really got you to say, hey, you know, it's, it's time for me to, to, to turn chapter here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Alejandro, the important distinction there really is that, you you know, you had my father's business doing great and, and we merged with that business. And this was not a, you know, built from the ground up from zero to two billion all on our own with our own feature. This was a combination yeah. of companies that, that got to this value. And so, you know, ultimately, that was a, a you know, phenomenal achievement for everyone and really exciting. But ultimately, uh, you know, there was a lot of things there's a lot of things that one has to take into consideration when you're working with governments, uh, you know, and distribution of welfare and these things are complex and, you know, you can't necessarily move as fast as you would like or be hugely innovative. Um, and, you know, when it comes to FinTech, that's where you've got to be. And that's really where, you know, what I love, uh, you know, people I, I, I find tend to call themselves sort of peacetime or wartime, you know, uh, I'm certainly a wartime person, you know, I just love, love the build and the hustle to get something up running and really growing fast. That's really what I love to do. So, nice. you know, so when I moved over to the UK, the whole idea was I really didn't want to leave South Africa. It wasn't a case of being pushed away. It was more a case of let's go and have a look at a developed market and go really and, and, and find something interesting we can go and build in a space that I love and know very well and, you know, have a real run at building something of massive value. And so, you know, so moved over to the UK about six, seven years ago, 2013, around there, and really was just talking with a bunch of people, close to a few people around a company called Afterpay out of Australia, you know, started to, of course, notice a, a company called Klarna uh, here in, in the UK out of Sweden, and a company out of America called The Firm. And so what I found interesting about these businesses is that about 16 or so, 15 years ago, we had a really interesting product, an installments product that we had rolled out in South Africa specifically to challenge and, and close down with the aim of closing down as many payday lenders as we could. 
And that product basically allowed our customer to have a physical plastic card in their hand, MasterCard, and they could walk into a store with their phone, they could dial up on USSD, and they could go and actually transact in that store. We would advance the money to the retailer on their behalf, and we would let them pay back in installments for no interest of any kind. And that was already 16 years ago. And people were mostly buying food or healthcare products and services. And so when I saw these other companies operating here, you know, with awesome, cool brands, Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, ASOS, you know, Nike, I was actually sitting around with my father and laughing a little bit looking at it, you know, and, and these guys are saying, oh, we've transformed credit. It's completely new. And we were laughing a little bit because we were thinking, well, not really. We were doing this 16 years ago in the middle of Africa. Um, but it's certainly very interesting that it's almost been reborn and, of course, upgraded with all the latest technology. And so that's really where I thought, hmm, this could be a fantastic opportunity to really go and democratize access to absolutely free credit in a massive way, you know, here in, in the UK and, of course, hopefully in many other countries too. That's really where, in my view, I, I, thought, I took a look at it and I thought, you know, I have the experience. We've built this with partners at scale before, people like MasterCard, et cetera. You know, why don't we go and leverage those relationships and all of our experience in building a debt book and, and running that at a very low default rate in, in tough countries like Nigeria and South Africa? Why don't we go and apply all of those learnings and roll that out here in the UK? And so that's really how I came to think about Silt. So then that's the birth of Silt. So, so for the people that are listening to really get what Silt is all about, why don't you share with us, you know, what is the business model and how you guys actually make money here? Yeah, perfect. So... You know, Zilch is a buy now, pay later company. And effectively, the, the fundamental difference between Zilch and what you might see in the market today is that, you know, fundamentally, the, the, the customer for Zilch is different to the customer for the other incumbents. The incumbents' customer is, in fact, the retailers. So typically, they have a B2B2C model. They build this technology, sell it to a retailer, and the retailer on sells it to the retailer's customer. And so, and so, you know, the incumbent BNPL provider is typically always aligned with and looking after first and foremost, the retailer. And as a consequence of that, they add value to the end consumer. With Zilch, we did it the other way around. We said, why don't we go and add value to the end consumer first and be aligned with them? And as a consequence of that value, bring some value to the retailer. And that's the difference, really. And so I guess the best analogy I could probably put down to kind of close the loop on this or explain this is, um, you know, if you think about Amazon way back at the beginning and we remove all of the sort of narrative fallacy around the story and you just look at the online bookstore, what Amazon really built was this delivery infrastructure. Um, and if you think about it, what they could have done is they could have taken that same delivery infrastructure and sold it to one bookstore at a time, integrated with the bookstore and said to that bookstore, if you want to sell a book online, we'll show it to your customer for you and we'll ship it for you to your customer. You know, sounds familiar, right? And I actually think that that would have been fundamentally different for them as an outcome. They would probably have become a commodity. They would have become a shipping company, you know, like UPS or DHL or, you know, DPD. Um, and I'm not saying those are bad companies. are massive, amazing companies, but they're not Amazon. And so, you know, what I loved about what Amazon did is they actually said, well, hang on. Where I get the books and how I get the books and how I ship the books is not your problem. Why don't I go directly to the customer and say to them, they can have any book in the world and we'll ship it to you in a day, but you got it from me. And with Zilch, this is exactly the approach we've taken. 
we looked and we said, hang on, every BNPL provider has the same business model. And actually, they're making it the customer's problem. Who are they integrated with? Who are they not integrated with? Where can you spend? Why can't you spend? For Zilch, what we've done is we've said, let's remove all of that for the customer. And we go direct to the customer and say, if you want to pay over time in installments, you can do that anywhere you like with Zilch. Online, offline, tap and pay over time, Amazon, eBay, anywhere you want to go, we'll give it to you. But you got it from us. And that way, we forge a relationship with our customer, which is phenomenal. And so today, you know, we're offering pay in four, and I'll come to, to that revenue model you talked about. We're offering pay in four today, which is brilliant because customers see huge value in that. But what's amazing is that we can come up with any new way to pay tomorrow. We can build it in two weeks and we can ship it for a dime to all of our customers who can use it any, at any retailer in the world instantly. A lot of the incumbents would need to speak to their retail partners and ask if it's okay to launch those products. Because remember, the end consumer is not theirs. It's the retailer's customer. And so that's why we think we have something truly unique. And that's why when you compare our growth year for year, and you compare that to someone even like a firm, who's an amazing business, and is in a six times bigger market than us, we currently are about four times ahead of where they were at the same point in their journey, mm. mainly because of this phenomenal over-the-top model we've built. So, so how does the model work? Ultimately, you know, what we, we make a number, a variety of revenue streams, uh, and that's a combination of fees from the retailer, uh, fee from MasterCard, data revenue, and advertising revenue. So when our customer checks out and they split a transaction in four at any retailer they like, what you find is they don't have to pay any fees or interest of any kind. And they get to actually pay over six weeks. So they pay 25% when they check out and 25% every two weeks. And it costs them nothing, which is pretty phenomenal. And then the name of the game in our business really is how fast you can turn that book. And so how many times you can make that commission on an ongoing basis within a year. And, 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 and what you're looking for is, of course, to mean that your, your resultant revenue um, with it per annum is obviously higher than the average cost of your bad debt losses, uh, your cost of sales, et cetera. And so that's the business that we're running. So you kind of got this really awesome, af massive affiliate uh, business combined with the card issuing business and a lending company all in one. Got it. So then in terms of, um, you know, for a company like this, obviously, it takes money too. To build it. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised at the moment just over 300 million US dollars to date. And so, you know, uh, the latest extension we did included and brought Goldman Sachs into the cap table uh, on the equity side, but, but predominantly on the debt side. So of course, we have to fund all of these receivables. And so this business is a bit more complex than, than, than some others. You know, this business requires equity capital and debt capital at the same time. And so, you know, Goldman have come in and so that 300 million today is roughly about half half of equity capital and then half around uh, debt, debt capital so that we can fund receivables. And really, that's just to help us grow. We've been growing at about 35 to 40% in underlying sales month on month for almost now the last 12 months. And so really, we've gotten to the point now we want to take the lending off balance sheet and, and bring in a third party, especially someone as fantastic as Goldman. And that's what we've done. And as you're thinking about use of proceeds, you know, when you're like raising that capital, how, how, how does it really change when you go from one financing cycle to another one in a, in a business like this? Because, I mean, obviously you are, uh, we were talking about this earlier, you know, which is meeting investors' expectations and, you know, and, and, and them really being aligned with how you're deploying the money, you know? So 
So how has that changed, you know, over time for a company like Silch? That's a great question. I mean, I think we could talk about that for, for a while. But the short answer I would give to that is, you know, the one thing we learned from our previous, the previous business and this experience with this previous investor is, you know, one needs to almost run the business with a high degree of corporate governance, regardless of whether or not this is a private company. And what that does really, I think it gives everyone that ease of mind that the use of proceeds is in line with the model that's being presented. And of course, as you scale, you know, you have thresholds to how you were going to spend that money and not what, and people feel comfortable that, you know, you're not misusing the funds effectively. And so, you know, and so that's really what I learned. So what we, when we set up Zilch, you know, our aspiration is to actually list this business. That is the direction of travel for us as a business. And so we really are running at a high level of corporate governance, even today as a private business, to ensure that we have everyone's expectations managed. We do quarterly reports and we make sure that everyone knows what's going on in the business that's invested in our company. I think that's what's given, you know, companies like DMG or Goldman Sachs this high degree of confidence in us and our team and our ability to to use the, the funds appropriately. But ultimately, it's what you might expect in the earlier rounds. The use of proceeds all goes into building the team, you know, engineering, building the product, you know, really going and building this thing that we have to go and launch as an MVP. And then slowly that that changes into obviously what you would normally expect growth. So that's marketing of the product. And then ultimately still continuing to invest in data science and engineers and customer support. And so a large majority of our proceeds today, when we raise money, goes into growing the business, that's marketing the company, that's customer acquisition, that's our swelling engineering team, which is obviously critical for a fintech, data science, which is, you know, today, you know, kind of the heartbeat of, of what we do. It's, it's really intrinsic to everything we do. And then for us, really, you know, customer support is so critical. You've got to, you've got to just be the best at customer support. You know, if you, if you go and you have a look at, at Zilch today, at least in the UK, we are the most rated and highly rated, most highly rated on Trustpilot across any of the BNPL providers. We're really proud of that. Um, you know, you have to have phenomenal customer support. So, so this is really what it's all about for us. And then, of course, you start to look at heavy compliance and regulation. We've always built our businesses with compliance and regulation in mind and at the forefront of our mind. So if you look at, for instance, our strategy in the UK, we went and we applied for our FCA consumer credit license two years ago, well before the regulator announced that they were going to regulate BNPL. You know, and ultimately, we have the same strategy for the US and we have the same strategy for the EU. Uh, because we are direct to consumer brand, we are not a B2B2C brand. We believe that we must have the consumer's protection in mind when we offer them our service. And so, you know, um, I would say that I hope that gives you a nice succinct view of how that's changed over time. But you know, as the business grows, compliance, regulation, marketing, and sales becomes a much larger portion of the spend. Whereas I'd say in the beginning, it's all about engineering and the build. Got it. So then in, in, in this case, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world, let's say, five years later. I mean, imagine tremendous news. And, uh, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Silch is uh, fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, no, for me, you know, today, we kind of are sort of the way we work and how we think about the business is today we want to be the best way to pay over time anyway. That really is, is our aspiration for today. We think that's a succinct message. It's clear. 
and it allows people to understand the differentiation of our product and the value our product brings. And I think that's a great starting point. But ultimately, what we would like to do is remove the words over time. So we'd like to become the best way to pay for anything. That really is where we would like to go. And you can already see this in the journey of our, of our product features. So, you know, we started with Pay in 4. We recently launched Pay in 1 with cashback. And so what's phenomenal now is our customer can choose, you know, to, to actually check out and pay everything and get cashback. They could choose to split in four. They can go retrospectively and change their minds, by the way, on both those decisions, which is pretty cool. Um, and moving forward, of course, there's so many things we're looking at introducing that might be different ways to pay. So that may be longer durations, um, or of course, that may be very different ways to fund those payments. You know, could you fund that just with fiat currency, or are there lots of other ways to fund those transactions? So ultimately, we really want to become the, the, the best way for people to pay. And, and then really jumping forward in the future, we do think that our name represents where things will most probably end up, and we're hurtling towards this, and that is that we would like to see a more sustainable world, certainly so. And we think the way to do that is probably to own less things over time and you know, to, to probably rent more things over time and allow for redistribution. And we think that our model perfectly tees us up to bring that to our customers over time too. So, so you know, if you jump forward two steps, uh, it's kind of where we think we're going to end up over time will be somewhere around there. That's amazing. I, I, I love that. You know, especially when, when you're saying that over time, you know, we're going to want to own less things. I mean, I'm, I, I completely can see that. So imagine now that I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. You know, imagine all this knowledge that you've been able to, to get over the years, no? And I bring you back in time to that moment where you were still in university and you were thinking about, like, uh, you know, doing your own thing. You know, hey, you know, look at this thing. Look at these companies that we could, you know, start and, <laughs> and look at this competition. and and you were able to sit that younger Philip down. And you were able to give that younger Philip one piece of advice before launching a company. What would you tell that younger self and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I would probably say, I mean, it's a great question. Off the top of my head, I would say, just go and do it. I would, you know, that, that really, I have to say, is probably what, what, what's helped me to get into entrepreneurship is is not, not really thinking about it too much. Um, I think if you really go and start to think too much about something, especially you know, when you look at business, you get all these analysts and they've got all this great advice and you can go and have you know, some beautiful McKenzie documentation and all the facts are there. But the reality is, is that business is made up of so much more than just the facts in the market. You know, there's been so many examples of things that just work and people still don't know why. And, you know, so what I would really say is, is, is what happened and, and, you know, encouraged by my father was, you know, it wasn't even really a conversation. Should I, shouldn't I? No, no, I'm going to go start this company and away we go. And so, so for me, I would say, you know, the advice for someone in that position would really be if, if you're going to talk about it uh, too much, you know, then, then you probably end up doing nothing. I would say stop talking about it and go do it. That, that would really be the advice. I love it. And Philip, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, so people can find me on LinkedIn, Philip Bellamont. Uh, my surname is, is quite unique, so you won't find too many of those. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, certainly so. Otherwise, of course, you can always contact us through payzilch.com if you'd like to get to us that way. And of course, anyone looking to, to, to join our business or be part of our journey, all of our job positions are on payzilch.com. You can check them all out there too. Amazing. Well, Philip, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. 
No, that's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.